You're listening to the First Baptist Church of Hazel Park audio podcast. We hope that this podcast is a helpful resource in your daily walk with Christ. Now, here's today's sermon. John chapter 16 is where we are going to be tonight. If you find it helpful, there are notes available on the website to help follow along. Um, also, I apologize in advance if I sound nasally or if my voice just sounds off. It's just the weather can't make up its mind here. And so just bear with me uh, as I'm going through this tonight. But John chapter number 16 is where we are going to spend our time together this evening. As we are in the middle of the Christmas season, there are certain things that you can depend on this time of year. You can depend on driving around and seeing Christmas lights just about everywhere you go, whether you're driving to work or you're driving to church or you're running errands. You can depend on hearing Christmas music on the radio, sometimes starting way too early. And you can depend on getting at least one gift that when you open it makes you go, why would you think I would want this? It happens to everybody, right? We get at least one of these gifts that just makes us wonder, why on earth would you think that I would want this? We open it and our excitement just quickly turns to confusion, but of course we can't let our face show that, and so we have to act polite and say, oh, wow. And then they kind of explain their way through the gift. Just a side note, if you have to give a long explanation for why you got somebody a gift, it's probably not a good gift. More often than not, sometimes there's an exception, but more often than not, if it requires a long explanation, probably not a good gift. But we all have been there, and so we do the polite thing, and we say thank you, and then if there's tags on it, we just Google the exchange policy on the way home or once we get home. Everyone has received gifts that they didn't want. But then there are those times where you get something that you didn't know you wanted. You get something that you did not know that you needed. That's the thing where when you open it up, you're first a little confused, not necessarily disappointed, just a little confused at what it is that you're looking at. And then as time goes on, you find yourself using this gift far more than you ever thought you would. And in some cases, it absolutely changes your life. And you think, I don't know how I ever went on before I had this gift. I was reading an article this week about some of these gifts that changed people's lives and things that they didn't know that they wanted. Some of them were fun gifts, like a shower radio. Some of them were more practical, like crockpot liners. And then some of them were absolutely life-changing. One woman who was wheelchair-bound talked about a gift that she received, which was a telescoping or telescoping doorstop. So essentially, when you opened the door, it would fold in on itself so that you could get the door all the way open. The problem that she was having is when she would try to go out the front door, it kept coming back and hitting the wheelchair, so she couldn't get it all the way through. So this absolutely changed her life because it gave her some measure of her independence back. So we've all received these types of gifts, and sometimes, again, they're life-changing, and sometimes they just are convenient. But in all cases, they're unexpected. In all of these cases, they're unexpected, and they're not really what we thought we were going to get. As we look at John chapter number 16 tonight, what we are going to see is Jesus explaining to his disciples what they're going to view as an unexpected gift, but also as something that's confusing to them. This is not a traditional Christmas text. Pastor mentioned that this morning. This is not a traditional Christmas text, and it really does not necessarily go in line with the Christmas story. However, there are practical applications that are often overlooked on this topic, which we are going to look at tonight. So John chapter number 16, if you're there, I'm just going to read the first eight verses. We'll pray, and we will dig right in. 
Verse number one says, These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. Verse 4, But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Let's open tonight in prayer. God, we thank you so much for the time that we have to get together tonight and to study your word. Lord, I thank you for the power of your word. Lord, I thank you for all that you do in our lives and the many ways that you bless us, Lord, and we oftentimes overlook them or they're unexpected or they're not the way that we would have wrote the story. But God, I pray that tonight, Lord, we would just look at the blessings in our life, Lord, that are often overlooked, but also, Lord, in the power of your Holy Spirit and what a blessing it is to know that we are guided and comforted by him. Lord, we thank you for who you are and all that you do for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So John chapter number 16, let's set a little bit of the background here for context just so we can understand the conversation that's taking place. This is actually the continuation of a conversation that starts back in John chapter number 13. The beginning of John 13, we're told that Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. And he begins to tell them about some things that are going to be happening, some things that are going to be coming up in the future. Ultimately, the point that he is trying to get across to them is that he is going to be leaving. He's going to be crucified, and he's going to return, and he's ultimately going to ascend to the Father in heaven. He tells them that one of them is going to betray him. This is, of course, this narrative where Peter says, Oh, not me, Lord, I will go with you all the way unto death. Oops. Well, that's that narrative in chapter 13 in the beginning of chapter 14. And then in John chapter number 14, that's where he starts to delve a little bit deeper in terms of him actually leaving. John 14 is a passage that's often used at funerals. I think just about every graveside I've ever preached, I've quoted at least a portion of John chapter number 14, where he tells them that he is going to be leaving, and of course they have questions about what that means. And then in John chapter number 15, as this teaching begins to really confuse the disciples, and they're really not sure what it is that Jesus is telling them, he begins to tell them that he's the vine and they are the branches. So he begins here in 15 teaching theology. And he's explaining to them that no one comes to God the Father except through him. And then at the end of the chapter, he says that when the comforter is come, then he will bear witness of me. He uses that word comforter, which we see in the text tonight, and we'll talk about again a little bit later. But that is all the lead up to chapter number 16 and this conversation that's taking place here. So when Jesus says in verse number one, these things have I spoken unto you. That's the these things that he's referring to. It's the conversation that has taken place in these previous chapters. And Jesus says the reason that he has told them these things at the end of verse 1 is that he should not be offended. Now that word offended is not the way that we would understand it in the English language. It basically just means he didn't give it to them as a stumbling block. He realizes that the disciples are confused, and so he's not intentionally trying to confuse them or trying to put something in their way that they're not going to understand. This is the same word that Jesus uses when he says, if your right eye offends you, to pluck it out. It just simply means that if it's a stumbling block, if it's something that's a roadblock, if it's a barrier, 
And so that's what he's referring to here when he says, I'm not giving this to you to confuse you. I'm not giving this to you to try to put a roadblock in your way. He realizes that what he is saying is causing some confusion here, but that's not Jesus' intention. And so in verse 2, he says, They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. So he begins to tell them about some things that are going to happen in the not-too-distant future. He says, when you go into the synagogues, you're going to be thrown out. And there are going to be wicked people that are going to attempt to harm you, and in some cases even kill you, and that is because they think they are doing God service. So Jesus is prophesying here that the disciples are in for some hurt, and they're in for some suffering as they continue to serve Jesus. But keep this in mind also. He's also previously told them in these last three chapters that Jesus is going to be leaving, that he is going to be leaving. And so he says, hey, just so you know, I'm going to be leaving pretty soon. Here's what you have to look forward to. So this is a lot of confusion, but also some natural fear that is going to be on the part of the disciples. And by the way, understandably so. These disciples were human, just like us. Many of them gave up their careers. They gave up their reputations. They gave up a lot to follow Jesus, believing that he is the Messiah. And now they're finding out that Jesus is going to be leaving, and that after he leaves, they're going to be enduring a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. This is a lot for them to take in. This is a lot for them to try to put together. These guys were human, and understandably, it was confusing. But Jesus begins to explain this concept in verses 3 and 4. He says, And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father, nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. So these wicked acts that are performed by wicked people, as he mentions in verse 2, by the way, this is still the same today. People that don't know Jesus are going to act like they don't know Jesus because their life has not been changed. And so wicked people are going to do wicked things. But notice what he says at the end of verse 4. He says, hey, I told you these things, and then in the end of verse 4, and these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. He said, I didn't tell you about all this at the beginning. This, I knew this was going to happen, but I didn't tell you all about this at the beginning because I was with you. This phrase tells us a larger part about who Jesus is. See, if we knew when we first started following Jesus, if we knew when we first got saved, Jesus were able to just show us and say, hey, I want you to know before you make this decision, I want you to be able to see the next 40 years of your life or the next 20 years of your life, and I want you to see what all of that is going to entail. If God did that, if God did that in our lives, many people, and I would venture to say the majority of people, would just decide to not follow him altogether. Because when we can see that far in advance, we wonder, man, I don't know how I'm going to get through that. I don't know if that's going to make any sense. But as life goes along, we experience heartaches, and we experience trials, and we experience struggles. And we didn't know when we started following Jesus necessarily that they were going to be to the extent that they were. And when we're teenagers, we go through things and we think, man, this is the hardest thing that I've ever had to do. And then we become young adults and we have families and careers and we have things that come into our life and we think, this is the hardest thing that I've ever had to do. And then we get a little bit older and maybe it's financial struggles or it's aging parents or it's something with our health where we begin to experience these things and then we think, man... This is the hardest thing that I've ever had to do. But with each passing trial and with each passing struggle, we're able to look back to all the times previously that God got us through it. 
See, if we knew everything right off the bat, again, many of us, if not all, would venture to just say, I just don't know if that's really worth it. If the payout is really worth all the struggle that I'm going to have to go through. But as we go through life and we can look back and see that all that God has brought us through, it is a testament to how good he is and how he's been faithful through all that. God got me through that thing ten years ago, and he got me through that thing five years ago, and he can get me through this, and he has a future in store for me. That's what happens when we serve God. We don't always know right off the bat. In fact, rarely do we know what that's going to look like down the road. But we can look back over the course of our life and say that he's been faithful and he's been good. And so Jesus here says... These things I told not at the beginning because I was with you. He then explains in verses 5 and 6 that he's going to be leaving. He's already mentioned this previously, but he just goes a little bit deeper with this in verse 5 and 6. He says, But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me whither goest thou, but because I've said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. He tells them that he's going to be leaving them. But again, he understands the humanity of the disciples. They were not able to see the bigger picture here. They were not able to see how it affected the world as a whole. All they could see is how it affected them individually. All they could see is what that meant for them individually, that Jesus was not going to be with them. And so Jesus says here, you know, I say that I'm leaving, and none of you said, verse 5, none of you asked me, whither goest thou? None of you asked me, hey, where are you going? All that you were worried about is that I wasn't going to be here with you anymore. But they were missing the ultimate plan. They were missing the ultimate purpose and the bigger picture that God is painting. We do this same thing, by the way. We're so focused on the here and now that negative things that come into our life, we can't see the big picture of what God is painting in our life because all we can see is how it's affecting us right now. And a lot of times, some of the things that we're experiencing in the moment are part of an answer to prayer that is going to come way later in life, but all we see is that in this moment, it's not being answered in the way that we think that it should be. And so when he says this here, he says, hey, I'm going away, and none of you are asking me, where are you going? None of you are asking me what the plan is. All you are worried about is how this is affecting you. So in verse 6, he says, because I've said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. And the idea of Jesus not being with them, again, it's understandable that that would have sorrow filled their heart. They have had such a great and deep relationship with Jesus, who was the Messiah, that the idea of him not being there anymore is completely understandable that they would feel sorrowful. But again, they're missing the bigger picture. And so in verse 7, Jesus begins to paint the bigger picture. And this is really going to be the focal point of what we're talking about tonight, is verse 7 and 8. So verse 7 says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So again, Jesus uses this word Comforter here. And he says that you will all be expedient. It will be better for you that the Comforter comes than if I were to stay. So again, the disciples cannot comprehend this. What could possibly be better than Jesus Christ being in the flesh with us every single day? What could be better than that? That doesn't make any sense. See, that's the gift they wanted. The gift they wanted was Jesus to continue to walk with them in the flesh every day, giving them the answers that they are looking for. They're to talk to face to face. And there's nothing greater that they could imagine. They can't imagine anything beyond that. But Jesus sees the big picture, and he knows that there is a gift that they need, but they can't possibly imagine. And that's understandable, because if you look at the Old Testament, and you look at what they would have known of God, 
the idea that there could be something beyond what they were experiencing. Now, they only knew of the Messiah. They couldn't possibly fathom this idea of the Holy Spirit of God taking up residence inside of them. But Jesus knew there was something better planned. That gift is the Comforter, which is, of course, the Holy Spirit. So what is the Holy Spirit, and what makes him so great? That's going to be the focal point of what we're talking about tonight when we talk about this topic of unexpected gifts. Pastor and I were talking about this this week, and a lot of times in church, it's uncomfortable when somebody talks about the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think the biggest reason why is because it's been so mischaracterized, specifically in charismatic circles, in terms of what it is that the Holy Spirit does, in terms of his role. Many people will say things like, especially again in charismatic circles, while the Holy Spirit is causing me to speak in tongues or he's given me this prophetic word for you. And so we get a little like this when we hear that terminology because of what it has been associated with. But we need to recognize and understand what the biblical definition of the Holy Spirit is. It's not some mystical being that's just called down or summoned. He is already here. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit of God already dwells inside you. He's not something that has to be summoned. A lot of times you'll hear songs, and it'll be something like, Come Holy Spirit, or, or we invite you in. And I understand that maybe they're trying to say, you know, hey, we're open to what God wants us to do. But the truth of the matter is, the Holy Spirit doesn't need to be invited. He's already here. He is already dwelling inside you if you know Jesus Christ as Savior. What is the Holy Spirit then, and what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, first of all, it's not a what, it's a who. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Trinity is, of course, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God questions define the Trinity this way. The Trinity is one God existing in three persons. Understand that it's not in any way suggesting three gods. This is a term that's used to attempt to describe the triune God. Three coexistent, co-eternal persons who are God. If the Trinity confuses you, then you are in good company. Many people are confused how all three are one, and Jesus was here on this earth, and he was God, but he was communicating with God the Father. Many people are confused by this, but here's the thing that we should realize. There are a lot of things that we can understand from Scripture, especially this topic. There's Scripture that we're going to look at in just a minute here that can help us understand this a little bit better. But there are also some things that we will just never know on this earth. They are the unsearchable mysteries of God. And by the way, that's a good thing. It's good that we cannot completely understand God and his ways. Because if we could, he wouldn't be God. He would just be a better version of us. We have a God that we can't understand completely because he is so much greater than us. He is so much more powerful than us. He is higher than us. His ways are not our ways. And so we will never be able to completely understand him. We are told what we need in Scripture to worship him and to know that he is all-powerful and that he is great and that he is worthy of all our affection. But we'll never know everything because there are some mysteries that we simply will not understand because we have limited knowledge here on this earth. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, but then what does he do? As I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of things that he does not do and there are a lot of things that he gets credit for that he is not actively doing in people's lives. However, we could spend a lot of time on that, but I think it would be more beneficial to just look at scripturally what it is that he does do, and then you can just help in your own time, in your own scripture study, root out the things that are not true. This is not a full exposition in any way, by the way, because you could study this for the rest of your life. So this is not by any means a full exposition. We're just going to focus on a few of the primary traits tonight. So the first thing that the Holy Spirit does 
is that he resides within us. I mentioned this a few minutes ago, but if you know Jesus as Savior, then you have the Holy Spirit of God residing in you. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 says this. Paul's writing, and he says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Paul is speaking to Christians here, and he's speaking specifically about their behavior in church. And he reminds them that if they are Christian, if they know Christ, then the Holy Spirit of God literally resides in them. So he resides in us. So what else does he do? And specifically, how does that affect how we live? Again, there is so much that we can get into tonight, and I don't mean to go shallow into this topic or anything along those lines. There's just simply not enough time to go into this as deep as we possibly could. But he resides in us. Secondly, he convicts us. When we're in God's word and we are spending time in prayer, we are more in tune with the leading of the Holy Spirit. Again, he's always there. It's just often that we neglect his leading and his conviction. This is one of the primary, one of the primary functions, rather, is that he convicts us of our sin. We feel convicted when we know we are doing wrong. Somebody will, some people will say it's guilt or it's conscience, but the truth of the matter is if you know Christ as Savior, it's Holy Spirit's conviction when you sin that you are feeling. In 1 Samuel, we are told about David, and many of you, if you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with the story of David. But David, when he is young, he is anointed. That means that he was chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. So when the time was right, he was going to be the king of Israel. But during that time, there's a man named Saul, who is the current and active king. Saul's not a great guy. He started off really well, but over time, he really began to sort of lose his mind in a lot of ways. And as people get to know David a little bit more, they begin to realize that this David guy is really great. And I think he's going to make a great king. They go so far as to write songs about him. And it's recorded how the people of Israel would sing in the street that Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And so this makes Saul irate. Saul is the active king. David is not actively pursuing to try to take over his throne. He's not doing anything along those lines. But nevertheless, Saul has an ego problem. Saul doesn't like to see his power threatened. He doesn't like to see it challenged. And so he begins at several different points throughout 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel to pursue after David. He says, hey, I'm just going to end his life. I'm going to end this right now. And there are several different points where he is chasing after him and pursuing him. One particular narrative in chapter number 24 talks about how Saul and his men were sleeping in a cave actively pursuing David, but asleep in a cave. David's told about this. So this is David's chance. This is David's chance to get revenge. David can go in there, and he can just end this once and for all. He hasn't done anything wrong. All he has done has been chosen by God, and yet he is having to go through all this and is on the run for his life. And so David does exactly that. He goes into the cave, but when he is in there, he decides that he is not going to take Saul's life. But what he does instead is it says that he cuts off just a small piece of Saul's rope, and then he leaps. And the next day he goes to Saul, and he shows him that piece of his rope, and he says, Hey, I want you to know I had the opportunity, but I didn't take it. I want you to know I am no threat to you. There is no reason for you to be pursuing. I'm obviously paraphrasing, but that's just the general narrative that you see there. Saul then stops pursuing, at least for then. He picks it up a little bit later. But here's what's interesting about that narrative and why it's relevant to what we're talking about tonight. When David goes in there, he, again, has done nothing wrong, had the opportunity to take care of this, and Saul would no longer be a threat to him. Instead, all he does is cut his rope. But what we are told in 1 Samuel chapter number 24 
is just that small act. Just that small act of just taking that little bit of his rope convicted David so much. It says literally the verbiage that's used is that his heart smote him. He literally felt so convicted by this small act, even though he stopped far short of what he could have done and what some would argue, oh, you would have had the right to do that. He stopped far short of that, but yet he felt so convicted by that. So convicted by that that he went to Saul the next day and God was working in David's heart as a result of this. This is the power of what God does in our life. When we are walking with God, when we are spending time in his word, when we are spending time in prayer, we know. We know that conviction of doing the things that we are not supposed to do, even the small things. But the truth of the matter is, the less time, it's like any relationship, the less time you spend in prayer and the less time you spend in God's word, it does not break the relationship. It still exists. But there's no communication taking place. And so at one time when we were close and when we felt conviction and when we knew what we were supposed to be doing, the communication line has stopped. God hasn't stopped. God is still exactly where we left him. We've just simply walked away from him. But God's Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and it shows us the areas of our life where we need to be like him. Thirdly, which is the word that we see frequently, especially what Jesus uses, is that he comforts us. This is the word that Jesus uses almost all the time, or at least the most frequently, when he's describing the Holy Spirit. He's someone that comforts our heart when no one else can. Have you ever met someone that was going through something just absolutely tragic, and you talk to them, and you're expecting them to just be broken, because that's exactly how you would be, and you would understand completely, and you talk to them, and they just say something along the lines of, you know, I can't explain it, but I just have this peace. I just have this overwhelming peace within me. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He comforts us and he brings peace that passes all of our human understanding, even when we are at our breaking point. As we read scripture and pray, we're comforted in our souls because of who he is. The Greek word here, I'm sure many of you have heard this, is the word parakletos, and it's often used as a legal term. It's often used to describe the picture of an advocate or a counsel or someone who speaks on behalf of another. This is what Jesus did for us. He was our advocate. He was our intercessor. He is someone who went before God the Father and paid the penalty for our sins. And that word here is exactly what that's describing. It's the action that Jesus took, but it's also the fact that the Holy Spirit of God comforts us and he resides with us and he guides us. And so all of these things, these three that we mentioned, and more are gifts that the Holy Spirit provides. While the disciples could not understand this at the time, they could not understand that that's what it was, they couldn't possibly understand the impact on humanity going forward. In their mind, they couldn't get around the idea of Jesus not being with them physically. The idea of Jesus not being with them physically was just something that did not make sense. Yeah, okay, Jesus, look it. The Holy Spirit, you say that he's going to teach us and he's going to comfort us and he's going to guide us and all of these things, but you're already doing that right now. So what benefit is it? How is it going to be expedient or how is it going to be good for us that you leave and the only thing that we get is what we already have with you here? Again, they're missing the bigger picture of what this is going to mean for all of humanity for all time. Last week, we had the opportunity. We went to Somerset Mall. They were having a toy drive. They had announced it a few weeks prior that they were going to have one of the Michigan football players, several of them actually, but that if you brought a toy to donate for Toys for Tots, 
you could get their picture with the players. And so I said, fine, twist my arm, I guess we'll go. And so we went and we got a couple of toys and we took, and we were expecting, you know, maybe 500 people, maybe 1,000 people. And so we said, hey, the event starts at 11. We're going to get there at 10. That way we can be near the front of the line and we're not going to have to wait for a super long time. And around 9.15, I get a call from Pat, who's already there, and he says, hey, I don't know if you guys have left yet, but you probably should, because there's already several hundred people there. So we rush out the door, and we try to get there to make sure that we can get a spot in line. By the time the event had concluded, this is an estimate, because they were not able to get an exact number, the estimate was that there was nearly 15,000 people that showed up for this event. Now, if you've never been to Somerset Mall, if you go into the general area, like on the main concourse, they have that big globe that kind of spins in the water, and then there's wings on each side, and then there's a wing that goes north. The line for this was literally to the end of the wing all the way back and then snaked around again. Pictures don't even do it justice of how many people were standing there, all for the opportunity just to get this picture, just to meet these individuals. And while we were standing there, and I was talking to Rebecca, we were just kind of talking about the crowd and how crazy it was, and I, I was telling her, I said, you know, I wonder sometimes if this is what it was like when Jesus would show up into a town. No way am I comparing Michigan football players to Jesus, okay? So let's just make that perfectly clear. But what I am saying is that in terms of the crowd size, I wonder oftentimes if that's what it was like when Jesus, who once he gained the reputation and the word was out there that he was healing and that he was performing miracles, if that's what these crowds were like just to get a glimpse of him. You read these stories in the New Testament of roofs that are being cut open and people that are being lowered down just to see their friend healed. You read these stories about a woman who pushes her way through the crowd just to touch the hem of Jesus' garment so that she could be healed. And all of these things and more were a result of Jesus' power and his healing ability. But here's the thing. When Jesus was here on this earth, he was bound to human limitations to a certain extent. Still God did not put aside his deity, but he did put on humanity. And as a result, he had some physical limitations. He could not be everywhere at once. He could not meet every single person that gathered. No matter how badly they would have wanted to two weeks ago, there's absolutely no way that they would have been able to get every single person through that line. Even if they stayed there all day and it was 10 seconds and it was one right after the other, there's no way that they would have been able to get everybody through that line. There's just only so much time in a day. Jesus knew that while he was on this earth for a purpose, there would be something greater available to them once he returned to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. Now, this idea sounds almost heretical. Could there be something better than Jesus? Pastor and I were talking about this this week. Could there be something better than Jesus? Could it really be that there was something better than the physical presence of Jesus here on this earth? Well, Jesus really says so himself in verse 7. He says, I tell you the truth, it is expedient. It's good for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. When Jesus was here physically, again, there were physical limitations that he had. But he knew that once he returned to glory, there would be no limitations on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit could reach all throughout creation to anyone who calls out to God, recognizing Jesus as Savior and asks for forgiveness of sins. No matter where they are on this earth, the Holy Spirit of God is able to reach them. 
We like the idea of the physical Jesus walking with us. We like this idea of him walking with us and talking with us and telling us what we should do. And oftentimes we even think, man, I just wish that I could have a conversation like I could sit down face to face with Jesus and I could just ask him, what am I supposed to do in this situation? Can you just tell me what I'm supposed to do in this situation? And I understand that to a certain extent, and I've certainly felt that way at times. But I think part of the reason why we feel that way is because we don't understand what a gift the Holy Spirit actually is. Chuck Bomar, who authored a book, Better Off Without Jesus, said this, Many times I laid face down on the floor, crying out to God, wishing with everything that I had that he would show up, physically present to help me and to comfort me. Jesus' disciples experienced Jesus in the physical. He was there in the flesh to comfort them, to answer their questions and clear up their confusion, to lead them, to provide a living example for them and to guide them. But then he said this, Our culture fosters a desire for us to receive Jesus as someone to help us with our own interests. We're conditioned to seek him as an addition to our individual lives, goals, plans, and visions. We think that we need to invite Jesus to join us in our pursuits. But in reality, the Holy Spirit is given not so God can join us in our pursuits, but so we can join God in his pursuits. See, oftentimes we think that, hey, we get saved and God's just going to come alongside us and all my goals and all my ambitions and all the things that I already wanted to do in life, this was the missing piece and now Jesus or however we say it, somebody who's just saved might say Jesus or the Holy Spirit or however it is that somebody says it, they're going to now propel me to this place that I wanted to be. That was the missing piece to the goals that I wanted to accomplish when in reality what usually happens is God redefines and he places new desires in our hearts for what he wants us to do with our life. It's not about what I want to do in dragging God along for the ride. It's about, God, what do you want me to do, even if it's something that I never envisioned for my own life? The Holy Spirit's given not so God can join us in our own pursuits, but so that we can join God in his pursuits. And so as we talk about this topic, and we talk about the Holy Spirit and how it was an unexpected gift in the life of the disciple, this is the question that I want to ask And I have a couple of small follow-ups to this, but this is the main question that I want to ask you tonight. Am I missing God's unexpected gifts? When we think about things in our life that are unexpected gifts, things that maybe we wouldn't realize as blessings, but they are, this is a broad category, right? There's a lot of things that you could define that as. There's a lot of blessings that we have in life that we might not recognize are as great as they are. And so I want to hone in on just a couple tonight in closing that we may not realize are gifts. Most importantly, of course, is the gift of salvation. I recognize that most, if not all of us in here, would claim to be saved. It's a Sunday night crowd. I say this all the time when I preach on Sunday nights. You've probably been in church for a long stretch of time. More than likely, most people in here would claim to know Jesus as their Savior. But maybe there's some that don't. And maybe there's even somebody watching online or that will watch later this week online that does not know of this wonderful, amazing gift. We talk this time of year, and it's cliche, and I know we say it all the time, how when we talk about, hey, what was your favorite gift you got for Christmas? And we talk to the kids, and then you kind of rope it into the lesson, well, Jesus is actually the greatest gift. And I know it can be cliche, but in reality, this is the truth of the matter. It's cliche because it's true. Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers is the greatest gift to mankind that we could ever hope for. And if you don't know for sure that Jesus Christ is your Savior, the one I'm about to talk about in a minute doesn't really matter yet, Because none of these other gifts are even relevant because they're all dealing with the temporary. This is dealing with the eternal. 
if you don't know for sure that if your time on earth were to end that you would spend an eternity in heaven, please don't leave here tonight without knowing for sure that you know Jesus Christ as Savior and you know where you will spend eternity. The Bible tells us that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's as simple as calling out to God, recognizing that we're a sinner, and asking him to save us. And there are several here who would love to help you through that if you have questions. Those of us that know him, this is the greatest gift that we'll ever get. We say it here all the time, but if we never got anything else in our life except salvation, we're still spoiled. We're spoiled beyond what we ever deserve. It was unexpected in the way that the disciples thought that it would happen, but it's the greatest gift that we ever could have gotten. So for those of us here who know Jesus Christ as Savior then, what are some other unexpected gifts that we may not realize or maybe some things in our life that we have not thought that way? For every one of us here, there are things that come into our life that are things that we never would have asked for and things that we never would have imagined. And when these things come, they leave us with a lot of questions and they leave us wondering why on earth this happens. But it could just be that God could use even these unexpected things to make us more like him. Now, I don't hear what I'm not saying. There are times where people go through something tragic and awful. And I'm not saying that God absolutely sent that into your life by any means. We live in a broken, sinful, fallen world, and terrible, awful things happen every day. But even through these unexpected events, God can still use it to bring honor to him. Maybe there's something that you've been praying for, and it doesn't seem to be coming to fruition. And it seems like God's not even listening. It seems like I'm praying for this, and I'm asking God to do this, but he is not listening. But maybe that's not the case. Maybe he's not keeping something from you. Maybe he's keeping you from something. Think about that again. Maybe it's not that he's keeping something from you. He's keeping you from something. See, a lot of times we have this idea that, God, this is the only way it's going to work out. This is the only way that it's going to work out. So I need you to answer my prayer in this specific way. Just like the disciples. This is the only way it's going to work out. So it just doesn't make sense for any other way. But could it be, maybe that God is actually someone who can see farther down the road than us. Obviously, yes, that's true. And maybe the things that we think would be good for us would not be so good for us long term. Maybe they would be good for us in the short term, but it would actually be a detriment to us down the road. We serve a God of the unexpected. We serve a God that does things in ways that are completely unexpected. And there may be things that come into our life that when they first come into our life, they're not what we would have chosen, and they're not anything that we can think God could ever do something with. But over time, we realize that God was doing something more expedient than we could ever understand at the time. And so as the musicians come, and we have this closing song of invitation, I just want to ask you to consider from this text tonight just a couple of simple things. Number one, as I mentioned, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, this time of invitation, we call it that because we're simply inviting you to respond. Some people feel this is a great opportunity, and it is, to come pray in the front, and you're welcome to do that. But by no means are you required to do that. You can pray right there in your seat, and you can ask Christ to forgive you of your sins. But maybe it's that during this time you're recognizing, God, there are things in my life that are unexpected. They are not how I would have wanted them. They are not how I would have written my story. But God, I know that you can do things beyond anything that I could ever dream of. Maybe it is that through this text and through reflection, we realize, God, I've been complaining and I have just been asking for things that maybe are not in my best interest. And God, I need to trust you that it might be unexpected, but it's for my good and it's ultimately for your glory. As we sing in just a second this song, Only a Holy God, Think about the words that he is a holy God. He is worthy of our worship. And he can be trusted with our lives, even if he does with it things that are unexpected. 
Thank you for joining us today on the First Baptist Church of Hazel Park audio podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about First Baptist Church, visit us online at fbchazelpark.com.